Hey guys, how's it going? Scott here, and I'm back with another episode of the Scott's Bass Lessons podcast. And today we've got none other than Doug Wimbish with us, the amazing Doug Wimbish. Now, I'm sure most of you will have heard of Doug before, but if you haven't, he's just had such a, just such a crazy career. Um, and he's going to go into it within this podcast. Just to give you a rundown, he's he started, well, he's, one of the biggest things he started with was in the band working for Sugar Hill Records. He was in the trio behind all of their, um, all of their huge hits. He like performed with guys like Grandmaster Flash. He did the single White Lines, you know, the do 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 that, that baseline, right? So that was Doug. He did Angie Stone's first record. And then like right through to playing with the Rolling Stones, Moss Def. Depeche Mode, Madonna, Jeff Beck. Yeah, I'm sure you get the idea. He's uh, he's had a crazy, crazy career. But this, what what I found is when we got stuck into this podcast, when we started interviewing him, he had so much to talk about in terms of the backstory of how he ended up working for Sugar Hill Records and all of that, that I decided that we were going to have to split it into two parts. So at the end of this interview, you'll hear me say, Doug, dude, we're going to have to stop because we're sort of like, we're way over the hour. And, and I want to hear all about the Rolling Stones. I want to hear all about like Madonna and Depeche Mode and Jeff Beck and all of the other guys that you've played with, but we can't fit it all into one interview. So what we're going to do is after this, well, obviously you can listen to this interview, but in a few months time, well, hopefully a month or so, we're going to hop back on with Doug for another, a part two in the, the Doug Wimbish story. Yeah. So you're really going to get a lot of info about the backstory of Doug Wimbish here in this interview and how he got into it and Man, the guys had some crazy times, let me put it that way. You'll find out all about them in the interview. Now, before we get into the interview, I also want to tell you about a gigantic, and I'll say that again, a gigantic giveaway we're doing right throughout the month of October, which obviously we're in right now, okay? We're gonna, we're giving away pedals. We're giving away a bass. We're giving away a bass head. We're giving away cabs. It's the whole nine yards. You've got to be part of it. So if you're not, if you haven't signed up to the competition yet, all you need to do, okay, grab a pen or, you know, your memory, just go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash huge giveaway. That's all one word, okay? scottsbasslessons.com forward slash huge giveaway. That'll take you through to a page and you can enter uh, enter on that page and you'll be into, uh, you'll be entered in the, into the competition straight away, immediately. And that will give you the chance of winning not only a base, not only a base amp, not only a base head, but also we're giving away a, 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 a an Aguila pedal each week as well throughout the, uh, throughout the month of October. So go over to scottsbasislessons.com forward slash huge giveaway and get hooked up for that right now. Now, if you're listening to the podcast on iTunes, I'll send you all of my bass love if you subscribe and leave a review as that really helps us get the word out about these interviews, guys. And I really think there's so much to be learned from listening to great bass players such as the guests that we have on the show. And if you're listening to this anywhere else other than scottsbasslessons.com, make sure you shoot over to the site and check out the show notes for this episode as I've put some fantastic videos up. Now, if you're completely new to Scott's Bass Lessons, go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit, okay? scottsbasslessons.com 
forward slash toolkit. I put some really cool video resources that you can download on there and check out, like a base buyer's guide. We've got um, a video where I talk about how to get gigs, great gigs, wherever you are in the world. So if you're moving to a new city or you're trying to break into the scene where you are, I give you some great tips for that. We've got a understanding the modes mini course. We've got a backing track library. There's loads of stuff in there. It's totally free for you to download. Just go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit. And also, remember, if you're an Academy member over at scottsbasslessons.com, you can watch the entire video version of this interview as well, okay? We film the entire thing as we do with all our podcasts. We film all of them. And if you're not already an Academy member, just go and check it out over at scottsbasslessons.com. In a nutshell, it's the best online learning platform for bass players in the world. The step-by-step courses, live seminars every week, the largest online bass educational community in the world. And those guys are so, so supportive and tons more. The whole nine yards. And we have a completely free 14-day trial for you as well. So you can take it for a test drive just to see if it's for you. And if you find it isn't, no sweat. You can cancel your account within the click of two buttons. Now, without further ado, let's get into the interview. Hey guys, how's it going? Scott here from scottsbasslessons.com and I'm here with the amazing Doug Wimbish. He has been kind enough to take an hour out of his time and hang out with us guys. If you've been living in a cave, you might not have been heard of Doug, but if you're anything like me, um, you will know obviously Doug Wimbish from Living Colour and man, you've played with so many different artists. Um, I was just looking at your resume before, like you've even played with the Rolling Stones at one point, you know, like... <laughs> Just like crazy amount of artists. But if we rewind the clock, Doug, and and look at how you got into bass itself, like did you come from a musical family or or was it just, you know, adventures of a kid that led you to picking up the bass? Well, I don't come from a musical family. Um, a little backstory on how it all started. You know, um, I'm from Bloomfield, Connecticut originally, and um, as a kid growing up uh, here in New England, um, you know, I was just like, you know, one of these kids that, you know, we were listening to AM radio before FM, (laughs) (laughs) like early, you know, radio, what was on the radio stations when you're with your kids, when you're with your friends and, you know, you're young and, you know, you're kind of like trying to uh, to listen to the different things that some of the older folks are listening to. So, you know, if, if uh, you know, someone records would come on and we would see how it would, you know, I would see how it would affect my mom and dad or my older brother and sister and their friends. Then I followed that. So that was, you know, it's kind of what you do, you know. Um, was it older brothers, was it? Yeah. I have an older sister uh, who's, uh, my sister's the oldest, and then I have a brother that's older, that's older, that, that's next, and then myself and the younger brother. So I was, I'm that third stone from the sun, yeah. you know, kind of kid that was, you know, you know, you're, you're, you grow up and you watch, which, you know, my, my sister's four years older, my brother's two years older, and I have another brother that's five years younger. So I was that kid in the middle, just, you know, like watching and checking stuff out. Absorbing it all. You know, yeah, absorbing it all in and stuff like that. And, um, you know, we would, you know, we would, we were listening to everything that was coming on the radio and just kind of like, you know, getting our little grooves on, you know, before, before I picked an instrument up, you know, yeah. listening to Motown and, and, uh, you know, um, all the funky, all the funky and groovy things that were coming on the radio station. 
And, um, you know, I, I actually had, uh, I was in like a, a early singing group when I was younger, right, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we want, you know, you know, we were like trying to be like the four tops or the temptations or the Jackson five actually, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, just, uh, you know, singing and doing little talent shows or, you know, stuff like that, but nothing really, really that heavy, something to keep us occupied, you know, and, and, uh, and to keep a conversation going on. Yeah. So, um, you know, my mom is from the Bahamas. And um, when I was, uh, you know, like very young, like about three years old, I went there to visit. And one of my earliest memories is, is making sandcastles on the beach in the Bahamas. You know, so coming from Connecticut, wow. New England, going to the Bahamas, is, I might as well have been going to Venus. <laughs> um, it's another world. Um, and then fast forward that. Around uh, 1968, I started to do uh, summers in the Bahamas. You know, um, yeah. I was blessed to go down there and spend time with my family, hang out, sit with my grandmother, and I have I have uh, four uncles that were there. Yeah, and my uncles are young, quite young. I have an uncle younger than me um, by a year, and then I have another one past who actually did play guitar. Uh, a little bit, and uh, another another two uncles that are um, maybe within maybe like within a, maybe seven to ten years older than me. Yeah. But it was cool because when I would go there for summer vacations and spend like you know two months there, and um, and my uncles would you know like it would, they would take me around and you know I'm the American nephew you know in the Bahamas <laughs> you know there in 1968 you know. Uh, 69 so it was cool and there was a lot of music going on i mean it's i'm in, I'm in nassau i'm in funky nassau so yeah you know the old the the old pirate vibe going on there it was really cool just to see all these different things as a kid and also the nightclubs that were everywhere they were abundant everywhere so as a as a as a young kid i was able to like you know get into nightclubs when i was very young yeah, you know because yeah. my uncles knew everybody right yeah so it's interesting because there, one of my mother's best friends, she owned a uh, a music store. Actually, it was a music store on one side and, a, and an appliance store on the other side. It was on Bay Street in Nassau. So I'm about 12 years old. And during the, uh, again, I'm there for the summer. It get really, really hot. So they have siesta time during the afternoon, yeah. shut the stores down. So my auntie would let me stay in the, in the store while she would go off to have lunch. She would she would just say, hey, Douglas, you can just stay in here and hang out in the store. So she's kind of like babysitting me. And um, but oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, she trusted me enough. She's like, you want to just hang out here? And, and it was air conditioned. And, you know, and there's all these, <laughs> these, this gear there. So I was like, sure. So I, yeah. I would hang out and spend an hour or so in a music store all by myself, you know, Fender guitar, Fender bass, keyboards, drums and. You know, I was very, I was very respectful of what was going on. So I left everything exactly the way it was when she came back there. But I sit around, play drums, and play the bass, and yeah, yeah. bang around. And that really got me, kind of got me sparked up a little bit. And then I mentioned I have a, a, a I had an uncle that had passed, but he played a little guitar and showed me a couple of chords. But just you know, real simple stuff. So it really had. So you know, I went there one summer. The first summer, and then um, and, and it kind of changed my, my life because I, uh, you know, I started. I picked the guitar up there and started playing. And even prior, I I had, I had messed around with stuff a little bit, but just as a kid. Yeah. And then my my um, 
my uncles came up with the bright idea of telling people in the in NASA that I was Jermaine Jackson in the Jackson Five. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was, you know, um, I, I, you know, the Jackson Five. It came out. I had a premature mustache, big afro. You know, <laughs> mind you, there's no television station. There's only radio and news that's there. And oh, all yeah, the news, yeah. uh, there's only newspapers that are there. So there's no TV. It's no verification. Um, and again, we're in Nassau, so the the the, the newspapers are all British uh, art newspapers, The Guardian and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, it, you know, the, you know, my uncles were very influential. So what they would do is they would drive me around and tell and, and walk into a, a, a hotel, which were on the nightclubs right at the time. They tell people, "Yeah, man, Jermaine Jackson right there with the Jackson Five. <laughs> Can you, uh, can you, can, you know, he wants to come and visit you. My uncles would, my uncles would say, don't say a word. Just, <laughs> you know, big afro, little premature mustache, bell-bottom pants. So I'd, so I'd, I would just be like, I'm like 13. And I would just, I would just follow my uncle's order. So I, I, they would usher me into the club. I could see where people had been comfortably having a great evening of entertainment right in front of the stage or whatever. And they would just make people move <laughs> and put me right in front. And then my uncles would start ordering Heineken's and, 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 and drinks and everything. So they basically were using me to crash parties and drink, you know, and get into different places. Pretty and much. That was the impetus. <laughs> that was the start of it all. That's what started it all. Yeah. So I'm sitting there one time. I'm like, I'm like. I'm like in the club. I'm like, my mom would kill me if she knew where, where I was at right now. She would string my uncles up. So I'm sitting in the nightclub. I'm looking. I'm like, this is absolutely brilliant. You know, I'm here. I'm, I'm being treated like a star. And I'm and I'm, but I'm also impersonating. I, I, I was, in, you know, a, a impersonator. Yeah. But people believed it. That's the that's the the reality of it. So I'm I'm taking all of this in. So. I was like, wow, this is kind of crazy. So I came back home that su- after that summer and asked myself a question. I said, now, do I want to play? You know, I love playing, but do I want to take this seriously or do I want to impersonate Jermaine Jackson for the rest of my life? Or, yeah, you know, yeah. live, live this world of a lie. So at that point, when I came home, it was right around this time of year, actually, in 1969, that I decided I wanted to be a musician. So I started to... Um, you know, engage in, you know, trying to figure out how to put the pieces together. Coming from Connecticut, there's, you know, there were limited access, there was limited access to, you know, um, music programs or schools and stuff like that, you know, and I'm, I'm like 13, I'm like about to turn 13. So I didn't grow up in, in, in playing an instrument. I wasn't in band or something like that, you know, playing clarinet and stuff. Um, so here I am, this kid deciding I want to play guitar. And, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory before even before that. You know how sometimes you just you f- you know you find things that are you know that help that help you know keep get your creativity going. And here's what happened. My first instrument I actually found in my next door neighbor's garbage. And what what would happen is twice a year because I grew up like right in the suburb right outside of Hartford. Twice a year they you know they um the city would allow people to, you know, get rid of some of their heavy furniture or refrigerator and stuff like that. Yeah. So everybody, they would all put their stuff out on the curb from their house. So us as kids, we'd ride around the neighborhood and salvage through stuff that our neighbors threw out. And, you know, they threw out some really good stuff. So not only are we salvaging stuff, 
but people would hire vehicles and vans and drive around and stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, you around, know, yeah. to pick up stuff, you know what I mean? Because, you know, it's kind of, I, I, I come from a, I mean, I, I, I'm, I come from a place where everybody had a house, everybody's living in a house and there's a lot of old families. And so you had folks that were, you know, they were getting rid of really good gear, I mean, yeah. really good stuff. So people knew that. So they drive around, people would buy, people would rent a, a truck to pick up stuff. Somebody's throwing out a dresser and it's all good stuff. You know, it's, you know, some stuff is rubbish, some stuff isn't. So as kids, we'd ride around the neighborhood and this was exciting for us, you know, because, you know, <laughs> Get your gloves out, rummaging through, scuffling through stuff to see what you, you, you know, what folks threw out. It was always something that you find a little something here and there. So here it was that time of year again. Me and my mates are riding around the neighborhood, and okay, cool. So we spent our day out, and I kind of came up empty. And when I came back home, my next door neighbor, who was a you know retired school teacher, and they, you know, and they had a lot of stuff in their house. And they had threw out their stuff to the curve. So I'm like, oh, wow, let me check out and see what's in here. So there's all kinds of stuff. So I start, start boring into the stuff, me and my sister. And I pull out this case. It's an old beat-up case. And I looked at it, and I'm like, wow, what is this? And I open the case up, and it's a mandolin. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, wow. Right? I'm, I didn't, you know, this, I'm like eight years old. And then my sister, she pulls out another case. And it's a banjo, right? So I opened the, the case that I had, and the mandolin was in pristine condition. Again, these are there was an older couple that had had this stuff, and I get in the and he used to play obviously mandolin, but he's retired, so he's getting rid of stuff. So, but it's in pristine condition. So I I open it up, and I'm like, wow. I go back to the house to see my mom. I'm like, hey, mom, look at what Mr. and Mrs. Woods threw this out. You know, my mom knew nothing about instruments. She was like, well, Douglas, go next door and tell, ask Mr. Woods if you if they made a mistake and if you can actually keep it. No problem. So I went over there. They said, oh, yeah, you can have it. No problem. So I got the mandolin. My sister got the banjo. Mandolin <laughs> has eight strings. Yeah. So I'm fumbling around. I don't know what I'm doing. I didn't know how to tune it. I didn't know nothing about it. But I did know that it made a, it made a, there was waveforms coming off the instrument. <laughs> there was yeah, a yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah. And it was mine, so I would sit around and just, you know, air guitar and emulate stuff that I heard on television, you know, trying to play the theme from The Man From U.N.C.L.E. or other TV yeah, yeah, things, yeah, yeah. stuff that was coming on television. Oh, here's a here's a Rolling Stones riff. Let me see if I can learn Satisfaction, you know, a couple of three or four finger riffs. So I started, that was my first instrument. Yeah. So eventually, I started breaking strings. And then I ended up, one string would break sevens, you know, six, five. I ended up with four strings. <laughs> so that was so that was my first kind of like instrument that I had. And then on the other side of the spectrum of that, about four, you know, so I scratched my name in it. I had it for a while. And then I finally, you know, do you know, my you know, I took so much interest in wanting to play guitar that my mom actually got me, you know, a guitar friend came over and sold me a guitar for twenty bucks or something yeah, like yeah. that. And actually, that was a Fandel guitar, which was one of the guitars that Elvis Presley played. So I was playing all these great guitars, but didn't realize that I'm a kid, you know, because it's the 70s and things are transitioning. So I, um, I uh, eventually, I, uh, you know, started to get into, you know, playing, playing a uh, uh, guitar. But with the mandolin, about four years ago, I know I'm going back and forth, but about four years ago, I get a message uh, from a guy. And what, what happened was 
I had the mandolin for about 10 years and then I ended up selling it to uh, or trading it in for something at a music store. And because um, I really didn't know what it was. I, you know, I was still kind of young and I, it was all beat up and everything. And, but yeah. I scratched my name on it, Doug, as a kid. So I had it for about 10 years. So I traded in about four years ago. I get a message from a guy on Facebook <laughs> and a guy is from Seattle, Washington. And he contacts me and he says, he saw an article, just like we're doing an article right now. I, t- I told the story many times about, you know, how I started, you know, how did I get my first instrument yeah. transition? I get a message on Facebook. Say, hi, Doug. I saw your article. Um, you know, th- you know, thanks for sharing your story with me. Um, I think I have your mandolin. You are kidding. Uh, that's what I said. I'm, this is this was freaking after 50 years, right? Uh, no, after uh, maybe 40, 45 years, easy, 45, 40 years. I said, really? Takes a picture. And he sends it to me. And, and I, I had, remember I scratched my name yeah. in it, in the body. See, he had, taken, he had taken the mandolin, got it refinished. But he said, I want to show you something. My name is scratched in it. It was a 1919 Gibson mandolin. <laughs> I had no idea. In it. I had scratched my name in it, but I was so young, I didn't even know it was all kind of beat up and everything. When I when I got the mandolin, it was a lot more beat up after by the time I had gotten it, you know, because I'm a kid. But I scratched it. It was a 1919 Gibson mandolin, which Man. is what I got rid. So that's that story. But I mean, so it was, you know. So anyway. The, between the, you know, my first instrument was a mandolin. Second instrument was a Fandel acoustic guitar. Then comes the era of, you know, like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, 1967. Yeah. You know, I'm listening to the Stones. I'm listening to all the Motown and Stack stuff. You know, I'm, you know, I'm starting to get a little more. I'm starting to get hair on my balls and shit like that, and yeah. hair in my armpits. Still, so still you start listening guitar, to things. Right? Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. You know, um, you 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 know you're, you're you're getting older and stuff. So I'm so as I got older, I started to get more educated with the music. And um, Woodstock came out. I remember you know checking Woodstock out with driving theater, and I'm a huge Jimi Hendrix fan. I could finally see how Jimmy's moving his fingers and stuff like that. I'm a huge Santana fan. You know all these bands that I like were playing Woodstock. So I was like, wow, this is great. <laughs> and then um, so I entered high school 1970, and um, and I, and I and you know you know Jimmy kind of turned everybody out and now everybody's got the you know suede vest and the wah wah pedal and stuff like that <laughs> yeah, so yeah, things yeah. started to shift a little bit so I had another guitar that I got and and, uh, and I was around so many guitar players at the time everybody's playing guitar and yet you have you know this one's playing Jimi Hendrix style this one's playing like Carl of Santana this one wanted to be Wes Montgomery this one yeah. wanted to be Keith Richards. You know, this one's an is an acoustic player. This one is a rhythm guitar player. This one's a lead guitar player that's half out of his damn mind. This one is, you know, all these different variables yeah. are going on. So I'm like, cool. So again, you know, I I um I said, you know what? Uh, you know, you first you're friends with cats, and then they're, you know, and then they're like, hey man, can you, you know, you want to come and jam with me? So my so I said, you know what? I can get my lessons from guitar players because they were the ones that were. I was hanging out with. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, because I was just starting to play, I had like a six string guitar and I just put that and they had some real fat strings on it. So one of my friends was like, why don't you just take the top strings off and you play bass on that guitar? Yeah. Right. 
And I'm like, okay. So we would, you know, we would just dream, you know, like, little, you know, you're dreaming, and, uh, you know, I want to, you know, hopefully one day have this uh, to become a full-time, full-fledged musician. So we would do stuff like try to make our own amplifiers and take a speaker and put it inside, you know, my mom's dresser that's, you know, you know <laughs> an old dresser or something like, oh, let's take the one out, oh, let's get this amplifier. And we didn't know what we were doing, but we were having fun. So, so I started to play with different guitar players playing bass. Because why? Because none of them would play with each other. They were all like, this guitar player didn't like that one. That one didn't like this one. So I was like, okay, I'm going to play with that one that doesn't like that. I'm going to play with the one he doesn't like and that one because this one could teach me jazz. That one could teach me rock. This guy could teach me funk. This guy could, could just give me some good knowledge to know what's going on. None of them are ever going to play with each other. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. I just went to the different hemispheres because that's where the... That's where I would, I would migrate where the good energy was. And were so you mindful of as a kid? Bass. You, as a kid, were you mindful of that? You you were like you knew you wanted to be a pro musician. You knew that you had to soak up all the information that you could get. Was it a strategic decision to play with the, these different guys? Well, right? yeah. You know, it was again. It's the, it's the Jermaine Jackson syndrome. I knew I didn't want to impersonate a fraud. I also knew that I liked to play. It was it was something that I got joy out of, and. Um, at the same time, I knew that, you know, there was only so far I could get in a Mel Bay book, yeah. you know, get, learn to play acoustic guitar, Mel Bay, yeah, yeah. you know, or these books that were available to, to us. And, it's, you know, it's not like, you know, it just things weren't available. It was you had to learn um, from, you know, a teacher or, if, you know, again, if you went to, if you were blessed to go to a school or whatever, maybe you had. You had the knowledge of, you know, um, notation and, and, and you were educated to learn how to read. So I was self-taught, yeah. but I started my journey via um, playing in bands. So each each band had, you know, like this this guitar player, he's playing rock. Then there's this keyboard player. He's coming from the church, but he's playing a little bit more bluesier stuff. So I just found a way how to be around these different communities yeah. with the help of my brother and sister and other friends and other folks that were supportive i was a pretty quick learner you know i would i could hear something and then i could you know, i was like a parrot you know i would just hear it and <laughs> yeah. i could kind of like get it get somewhere close to it or something like that so that's where that's kind of where the, this is like all happening between 60 1966 and 1970 was where it all kind of like from the beginning of me picking an instrument up to that mandolin to getting that fandel guitar to actually now 1970 starting high school and working with different guitar players that did not want to even speak to each other or play with each other. So <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. clever enough to know, okay, you know, this is great because, you know, I could, I could sh move stuff around. So that's what I did. So fast forward that I would play guitar sometimes and play bass. Some bands I play guitar. So I tethered. So, you know, I started, I learned the lanes of both instruments, the responsibility of, of, of what they you know, uh, uh, you know what what you needed to to have in place to be able to play guitar. You know how to pick and you know your your cording and stuff. How to how to play a bass, where to hold it, where to get the tones out. You know, and um, I'd borrow my friends' basses. I borrowed a friend's bass that he had a um, a Fender Mustang bass with the black nylon strings. And you know, then you know I you know I would borrow basses because I only had a guitar. I didn't really have a real bass. Yeah. Um, so I so I finally ended up getting getting a bass and got a precision bass and um, I started to move forward from there. So I would you know from from high school 
for the four years I was in high school, I played guitar and bass simultaneously running, running. I would play bass with the elders, with old, with other folks that I was trying to learn from. Oh, yeah, I yeah. played guitar with my contemporaries in high school and stuff like that and banging around. So I play, you know, during the day, guitar at night, bass, you know, so I did both of that for a while. Did you always and, know um, that it was going to be the bass? That was it. Did you always know that it was going to be the bass? Well, it kind of, you know, it's, there it was that a kind of moment I like, where I like, like the frequencies. The thing that got me about bass was just, it's like anything else. You go to a, you go to a, a, a gig or a, you know, a cookout somewhere and somebody's playing the records. Before you even got to the house, what's the first thing you hear? You hear the bass. It's the, it's the shape of the note. It's the tones. The yeah. waveforms are so long. You know, I'm not understanding it. I'm just knowing what's that sound. And as you got closer, <laughs> then maybe a little bit of the kick drum would come in. And then you hear the drums, and you hear the guitar, then you hear the voice, but you heard the bass first. You can hear, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, you know. So I like the frequencies of it, and and the uh, also the the um, the you know just kind of like you know the you know there was you got to remember there's a lot of great music going on around at that time. So it was every song was a lesson, and you know James Jamerson is on the radio everywhere. So I'm yeah. listening to all these Motown bass lines, and then it, then things started to you know then. I'm also liking the sound of stuff. So, you know, wah-wah pedals, fuzzes, phase shifters started to become readily available. And I would, um, you know, I would, I would like to, you know, I would take my bass and start to run it through a Mutron pedal or an Echoplex or, or through other things. So from the time I started playing bass, I always was, ex I was also experimenting with, with effects so and sound. I just like right the sound. Then, yeah. Wow. You know. So I, so that ran later. parallel. I always, you know, so, you know, um, I, you know, I'd bang around with it or one of my friends would, you know, his older brother would be in Vietnam. So he'd send us home cheap, cheap stuff from from Vietnam and stuff and a uh, little amplifier, another guitar, the yeah. Star Spangled Bannered suede vest, Jimi Hendrix poster, wah-wah, wah-wah and a fuzz pedal, all these crazy knockoffs and stuff. So I get them. And um and, you know, you just, again, you just, you know, it's great. You plug something in and you start making some noise with it. And, and you know, you kind of find, you find a connection between, you know, not just the notes, but now your foot's got to get engaged in it. And now you're, you're you know, and you get, you're, you're able to express certain things sonically um, just, you know, with some pedals and stuff. So I always played with, I like sound. And if, yeah. you know, and if, if I could have plugged my bass through a bloody daggone washing machine, I would have plugged it in there if it was on a spin cycle. If it, if it gave me the sound of a, if the, if the washing machine is on the spin cycle and it gave me the sound of a Leslie organ, I would have plugged into yeah, that yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So it's just, I, I always like sound. You know, I could, you know, I, I get up in the morning and I'm, I hear the birds, you know, I hear planes and the rivers and everything. So I always like the just natural sounds and it's quite refreshing. So always. I always found a way to keep myself engaged. But mind you, it was early days of, you know, there's a lot of, you know, okay, you're a bass player. This is the lane you must play. You must stay in. Do not cross over. Or you will be, you know, you'll be <laughs> infringing on, you know, the guitar player, the keyboard player and stuff. <clears throat> but the thing is, so eventually I started to meet people that were like, you know, again, you know, things started to open up. 70s kicked in, the funk era, sound started to get, you know, started to shift up. All the jazz cats started to get a little funkier. Herbie Hancock's coming out with, you know, you head know, with uh, that, yeah, the yeah. Headhunters or Miles Davis is coming out with, you know, 
on the corner. So he's got a wah wah pedal going on. Everybody's starting to get a little freaky and shit. <laughs> so I just kind of like I'm just I'm like wow this is you know I'm just checking everything out. I'm young, so I'm absorbing it. But um, but eventually, eventually I found guys that were that were um that caught that that could see that I was I could play a little bit, but I also had. Uh, uh, my own voice and I was also keen for experimenting with sounds and stuff like that and some guys were like yo this is kind of cool you're make you're making me sound a little bit more relevant right now even yeah. though I might I might be playing with a keyboard player that's a little bit older but I add a little neutron to the sound now he's he feels like he's a little hipper now those bell-bottom <laughs> pants yeah, start yeah, yeah, to yeah. shift and he's now he feels like he's 20 years younger you know because the songs that he's playing now, here's this young kid playing with him, and I'm kind of helping to make it more, more modern in a sense. So, I found people that um, gave me uh, the opportunity to play, but I also knew my lane. You know, some folks were like, "I, with, I, would, I already, I could already suss out whether a person would like this or that," and you know, just through a conversation. So I would, so I wouldn't even intro, I would only, I would play the field. For the, you know, whoever the artist was, I yeah. I learned how to, you know, be chill enough, and also you know, you know, uh, it's like a doctor. You know, okay, what do you need? What is your? Yeah, yeah, what yeah. don't? What don't you like? Yeah. I start, you know, what don't you want me to do? <laughs> well, I don't want you to play these notes. Leave that away. Okay, no, you know. So you figure out where everybody's where everybody's coming from, and it's all good. The discipline from one person, not that note play this, I'm playing a C major scale, hit the A flat in the bass on that, and I'll take it to an F. You know, I started learning different, the music from keyboard players or horn players. Okay, I'm playing with a saxophone player. I got it's a B flat instrument here. I got to, you know, how to transpose and do stuff with bands and stuff. So I was playing with a lot of self-contained bands, you know, organ player, um, two guitar players, percussion player, background singers, you know, and, you, and you're going through, you know, repertoire that covers anything from, you know, uh, Chicago to, um, you know, like Sly and the Family Stone yeah. to Motown. So I'm learning through songs. My it's education like club came gigs, right? Just from club gigs. the yeah. songs. Yeah, like, yeah. like most of us, you learn, you know, and, you know, through the songs. So I put the time in, you know, I would, you know, I, I like to play sports, but I like to, I like playing um, my instruments. So I put the time in, you know, and just, and, and, and I found a way to, 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 um, to just stay, you know, engaged yeah, you know, yeah, in, absolutely. in music. And wh where did the next step come in your career? Was it when you started working in studios? Well, what happened was, yeah, I think what it was, it was, it was when I was in, um, you know, I started making records early. Um, my sister was dating a, a professor at, uh, at the University of Connecticut. He was a music educator there. And um, his name was Ron Ankrum. And I'm like 16, and my sister's going to University of Connecticut, and um, she graduated there. So anyway, he, he Ron took me under his wings, and he's a very very good guy. So he was like kind of like a, he is like your Fender Rhodes piano player playing Herbie Hancock, but also Stevie Wonder was very influential at that time with mm -hmm. the songwriting and everything. Yeah. So I learned a lot. Uh, he, and he was kind of like a he was he he was a jazz artist, so he kind of played, you know, jazz that what that you could still pat your foot to, but it was all. But he had the he had the uh, he had the knowledge and skills as an educator to help me understand more about what my role was as a as a musician. Yeah, you know, you know. So Ron was a big help, and then he took me into the studio, 
um, when I was about 16. So I was a uh, early <laughs> sophomore in high school. You know, I'm, I'd, I'd come from football practice and I <laughs> go right in and start playing playing bass shit on the weekends. He took me down to New York City and 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 and, and recorded a record with him down there. And um, I'll never forget that. That was so. That was I started very early. And again, what it would just be a matter of you know, like I was with an, an elder who you know, was at a point where he was able to, you know, he had he had enough access and stuff to be able, and he had music himself, and he was, you know, wanting to record his music. So I just was, you know, he's like 15 years older than me, so I was just blessed to be around these elders. So yeah. my elder, my working with elders became something that was, was really excited me, you know, because yeah. now here I am hanging out with my kids, <laughs> with my friends, and going into high school on the weekend, I'm in, I'm in New York City recording, you know, and I'm back, you know. So I started that early, and not my I, my friends couldn't even fathom what was going on because they're still <laughs> playing ball and doing stuff at the swimming pool. And I'm, what did you do this weekend? Ah, I just went to New York. I couldn't even tell them what I was doing because they thought I'd be, you know, bragging or, they, yeah. you know. But I'm <laughs> here. I'm on 48th Street going to Manny's at looking for strings and shit, you know. At at 16, wow. you know. Um, so I did that, but it was exciting because it gave me this sense of uh, uh, it was a, it was a journey, you know. It was like I'm playing with older cats, and yeah. I'm like, wow, this is this is kind of cool. It's always cool when you're hanging around older guys and they're not telling you to, all right, little kid, get the hell out of here. I just would sit there and I'd be very quiet and I'd learn. And when you're kind of like that, cats would be like, oh, this kid's cool, let him hang out. Absolutely, and then you know yeah. that's kind of how it all went down. So I worked with Ron. Ron opened the opened the door for me, Ron Ancrum, and. Um, then I um, in, in search of trying to get more um, knowledge uh, to the instrument, I, I, I took a, a course at the Hartford Conservatory, um, which is, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a music school up here in Hartford, Connecticut, where I'm at. More orchestral and, you know, it was a pretty serious straight ahead, you know, um, school. So I was just taking theory there. And I went to college and I started taking theory there and doing stuff um, just to learn, you know, just kind of, all right, this is just the bass clef, this is treble clef, this is, you know, just trying to get my, my um, just get the proper knowledge and education yeah. of this note is that on the staff. Um, so that took place. And again, I'm always hanging out with old, with older guys and I'm starting to work my way and playing with different cats in Hartford. A lot of great bands here. So I was a young kid that started to, that was cool and then word got around and then you know i'd play with this cat and that cat and that cat so that's kind of what i did um and then as i after i i went to a i went to a place called the artist collective which was established by uh saxophone player jackie mclean jackie oh. played with um with uh, uh miles davis john oh. coltrane and stuff like that he had moved from new york city to hartford set up a a, a like a collective with with uh, different artists and dancers and stuff. And he bought his New York City friends here as well yeah. to come and be a part of it. And, and basically, the collective was, you know, you, you could go there and take lessons for free, but you had to work. You know, it was like, um, you know, okay, if you couldn't afford it, then maybe you could take the trash out or you could mop the floor over here or, you know help the old lady with her groceries and, you know, mow the lawn or whatever. Yeah. So I did that. And I took lessons, and then I and there, I met. I was like, okay, they had a they they were offering bass lessons, bass guitar lessons. Wow. Yeah. Like, oh, 
Yeah, finally, <laughs> here's something that, you know, I can, so I'm like, I couldn't wait. So I go there, I'm like, I get there, and I go, and, um, and who's giving the bass guitar lesson at the Artist Collective? Skip McDonald. <laughs> you know, so I met Skip at the Artist Collective. Skip's coming from Dayton, Ohio, transplant. Now he's here in Hartford. So we started playing. And my first lesson, by the time we got even 15 minutes in, he was like, he just put the bass down and he picked the guitar up. <laughs> he was he was he was teaching bass there because they, they you know they were offering it up even though he's a guitar player. Yeah. That's hot. So I had met Skip at the Artist Collective, and actually I had talked to Skip about a year before on the you know my brother older brother Victor had put Skip on the phone. He had met Skip playing. They were they used to play chess together. You know on they lived in the same street. So he, so he had, you know a year prior Skip my brother. And put me on the phone with Skip, and and I, you know, and then I ended up meeting Skip uh, a year later at the Artist Collective. Oh, yeah. this is the same person I talked to on the phone. So I met Skip. That's what changed my life. Meeting really, Skip meeting Skip, yeah, yeah. Skip from Little Axe, and we did all the Tackhead and everything like that, yeah. Sugar Hill Gang. So I met Skip, and from that point there, you know, I my my whole world changed, uh, uh, three sixty, because now I'm meeting a flipping genius and one of the, and one of the nicest human beings in the face of uh, on this universe so now i'm like i'm feeling and you know he just took me under his wings i was going to say did he just come with me <laughs> yeah, yeah you know what i mean then i then he, he's like then he introduces me to all of his world and everything like that and skip coming from dayton ohio was really tight with the ohio players and they were they were number one here in america at the time so within like Almost like a day, my whole world changed. One oh, was he super, super fast, yeah? Yeah, so I met Skip, and then Skip introduced me to another person named, you know, Harold Sargent, who was a drummer. He was from Cincinnati, Ohio. Harold used to play with Bootsy and Catfish and stuff. So I'm meeting yeah. all these, um, the, the, oh, my Ohio connection started. And um, that was 1974. I just graduated high school, and um, I met Skip. And then I then I met another keyboard player named Bobby Santos. He's you know he was a wicked keyboard player, a Stevie Wonder fanatic, sing his ass off, and he lived in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. So graduated high school. The country is in a serious recession post uh, Vietnam. Yeah. You know nobody could get a job, and I'm like, you know what? I got <clears throat> off. I got an offer to play at, at a, a hotel up in uh, in Cape Cod. So I took it. So I was there for three months. So I met Skip in the summer of 74, and then Skip went off to do, he was touring as well. And then I went off to Massachusetts, got my first gig. Now, it was crazy, man. I was making, I was making money. I was making more money than my parents were, you know, probably <laughs> playing in a hotel. I'm 18, you know what I mean? And, and, you know, playing in a hotel and stuff like that. It was big for me, you know. Yeah. Got my, own, got my own crib. I'm right across the street from the friggin' ocean and stuff. I'm like... This is the dream. <laughs> it's great. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I got money in the bank, and I'm 18 and independent, and I'm, you know, well, that lasted for about three months until the key, until the piano player decided he didn't want to do it anymore. So next thing you know, I'm back in Hartford, and then, <clears throat> um, that's what happens in bands. And then, um, you know, I, you know, Skip was on the road. Then, you know, we, you know, I met a. My friend Harold Sargent was kind of like the glue of everybody, the drummer. He was the oldest. So he was like, you know what? Let's put a band together. 
um, blah, 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 blah. So Skip would come back home from, he, he, you know, everybody would play these, you know, like, you know, would play clubs and play at a place for six weeks here or whatever, you know. And so guys would be gone. And then Skip came back. We were like, you know what, let's let's get together and form a band. Yeah. So we did. And um, so now, you know, one by one, different players, you know, started to come in, started to come into, come into play. The keyboard player, Hubert Powell, was uh, it is a genius B3 organ player, piano player coming from the gospel world. He was Richard Groove Holmes, the organ player. He was his protege. Right. Okay. So um, he's killer. So we had Hubert on organ and then uh, Otha Stokes on saxophone, who was like, you know, best friends of Sats from the Ohio players are all pimped yeah. out and shit. So I'm, I'm around this kind of like pimp culture, music culture, real world culture, 1974. I'm right in New York City on Broadway with all these elders with, you know, you know, coming from a serious street sensibility. We'd roll up in three Cadillacs, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, and I'm sorry, I'm this little kid in the car. Now I'm 18. I'm with like these ex hustlers. And, you know, and then they're introducing me all their pimp friends because it was all of those folks that would that would help support the musicians. Oh, this person's got an after hour club here. We can get to go play with so and so and this and that. Next thing you know, I'm like, now my mom really knew what I was doing. She was killing me right now. So, but that's where the music was at, you know. So next thing you know, we form a band, get it rolling, looking for a record deal. And um, are you living in New and, York at this time? Huh? Were you living in New York at this time? No, I was in Connecticut. You were still traveling. So we, yeah. we would go back from I'm 100 100 miles from New York City, so. We were going down to New York City to try to get a record deal because we put a band together. The band was killing. So Skip and Harold, Skip the guitar player, Harold Sargent the drummer, they had they had um, um, met Joe and Sylvia Robinson um, a few years before and did like a, you know had some had some connections with them. But you know, so as we're looking for a record deal, you know they had already they had already worked with Joe and Sylvia Robinson, but they were like, oh, we don't want to go there. Let's go find let's try to find some. Some some new folks, and I only heard stories about Joe and Sylvia. Joe and Sylvia. <laughs> so we went around trying to meet some other folks, and some people were like, you know, yeah, I'll do something, I'll do something, but nothing came up. And then Harold was like, you know what? Why don't we go by and see Joe and Sylvia just to check it out? And some guys <laughs> were like, no, I don't want to go see them. And Skip was like, no. So I'm just like checking out, like, okay, now I've been hearing stuff about Joe and Sylvia for a while. Well, you know, so let's just go by there. So we went by there. And I met Joe and Sylvia Robinson. This was 1974, the end of 74. Yeah. And things would happen quick. You know, I'm just coming from Cape Cod within a couple of weeks later, you know, we're, we're hustling stuff. We get together and do something. But things, we, we do a week of rehearsal, something like that. You know, we got enough stuff. Let's go try it. You know, we play around and maybe within a month's time, we were ready to go. We already recorded stuff. Let's go see if we can get a record deal. It happened that quick. Yeah. So, so I'm the young kid. I'm like 18, and everybody else is seven to 15, 20 years older than me. Yeah. So I go in there, and I'm just like chilling out. So I met Sylvia Robinson, I met you know um, Joe Robinson, and and Sylvia took a shining to me. She was like, oh, you know, you gotta, you know, who's the young bass player you got here? She heard us play. She really liked me, you know me playing at this time you gotta remember like this is 74 so the funk is really in your face at yeah, the time, yeah, right? yeah really you know it's the the the, the age of bass guitarists you yeah. know it, it's really come alive yeah, thank like you larry graham, graham and all that thank you Monk, montgomery 
Thank you, everybody else. John and Twistle. Thank you, you know, to James Jamerson. But now we got the likes of a Stanley Clark and Larry Graham and a Bootsy Collins. And so now you got the base in really melting your face out. Yeah. So, you know, um, and and Skip and, and 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 my band, those core guys were from Dayton, Ohio, and all the funk was coming from Dayton at that time. All these funk bands, just Ohio players, Fazo, um, Heatwave. There's so many bands that came out of Ohio. It's mind-boggling. James yeah. Brown was set up in Cincinnati, so the cradle of funk really was. Well, a lot of it was coming out of, uh, out of Ohio at the time. If you look at the scorecard, so. So we, we cut out, you know, um, Skip, and, Skip and Harold had did one single with Joe and Sylvia Robinson like a few years earlier. And, you know, a lot of times these labels would, you know, like what they would do is it's all a scam anyway. They would have like uh, they'd have one artist that would be successful. They'd have four artists that they would make sure were not going to be successful so they could write them off. Right, okay. You know, they're like, in, <clears throat> you know, any you know, like the world we live in. So. Skip it did. They did a record, one single with Joe and Sylvia Robinson about two years before we had, I, you know, before I met Joe and Sylvia. And so they were like, um, so there was a history that was there. When we went to have the meeting with them, they, you know, we played them a few things. They liked what they heard. And they were like, okay, you know, um, you know, you guys made a record with us two years ago. And basically the label had, had this band name called Wood, Brass and Steel. And they kind of like, you know, you know, um, they were like, look, you guys, we already did a record under Wood, Brass and Steel before a single. Why don't we do an album? Why don't we now, you know, you guys are back here now. Why don't we follow the, you know, what we should have did two years ago? So, you know what? We were like, you know what? Why not? So we ended up doing a record with, with them, and then we carried over the name Wood, Brass, and Steel, which had been like a name that the actual label kind of owned, in a yeah, sense. Yeah, Even yeah. though the you know Skip and Harold were the ones that were, you know, did a single before, now we're going to do a band and put new players in place. I was the young bass player, a lot of funk in your face. That was the, that was the beginning of doing, a, you know, re- making a record that, you know, that, um, you know, we had some regional success. You know, they were played in New York City and, you know, and, it, it, you know, Joe had a lot of inf- had a lot of influence. You know, he was, you know, at, he was an independent record owner. And Sylvia came from the success of, you know, Love is Strange with Mickey and Sylvia, Mickey Baker, the yeah, great yeah. guitarist and stuff like that. And, you know, she did quite well. Love is Strange was was the most played record. In America, in America, until the Beatles came there, so you know it was there. It's yeah, a massive yeah. hit, you know, massive, massive. And Sylvia was like, like the, uh, a lot was like the black Elizabeth Taylor. I'll never forget, man. She had a fucking diamond ring like this. You know, I get there, it's a big diamond, <laughs> big diamond ring. Like I'm like, man, I'm gonna be blinded. So you know, but she took a shining to me, and. But again, I was around a pimp culture. You know, I was around a lot of you know these guys that I was with. They knew the streets well. They you know. You got, you know, one guy that was doing this and stuff like that. So, you know, and Joe Robinson was a numbers runner. So he had a record label, but he was a numbers runner. He was also tied and connected with the Gambino crime family and stuff like that. So it got real deep. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it got real deep. I was in this in this, um, you know, we're playing after hours clubs and, you know, stuff like that. It was 
it, there were um, many illegal activities that were taking place in these in these times. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you know that's how things were kind of done. You know, in 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 the community. You know, you're you're playing at a club in Small's Paradise in New York City, and there's Cadillacs that are triple parked on the street. You know what I mean? And <laughs> triple triple parked. Yeah. A guy would come in the club and he, he's got a mink coat on. He opens the club up. He's got and gold chains here, or, or he's selling some <laughs> steaks over here, and so it was, it was, it was a street sensibility. You know what I mean? It was yeah. all kind of so. I got my, let's just say, my street education on. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, as far yeah, as yeah. knowing how that to was your survive. And the guys I were with, they were, they had been on the road. They did the chitlin circuit. Saxophone player Stokes, God bless him, he was a genius. He could come into town and within, within. Uh, hour he knew where all the drugs were at where the food was at where all the you know we had a place to stay you know, <laughs> you know women everything he was he was a proper hustler but he was a great horn player that's what that was the other that was the culture you know that was going on you know that's it was it was this it was the hustlers or the the independent entrepreneurs that would give the parties or have a dance and you know they were your they were your um Harvey Goldsmiths of the, you know, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. community. Yeah. You know what I mean? They were the ones that were like, okay, well, so-and-so is going to give a gig here. And, and they would be rammed out. You go, you do a gig, man, it'd be 5,000 people there. More than it is gigs that I'm doing right now. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. they were, you know, lo and behold, I was in a very interesting vibe. But again, there was, you know, you had to be very careful because you could get swallowed into uh, this underworld of stuff. But I kind of kept it cool, man. I just tried to... I tried to walk between the raindrops and avoid the gunshots and stuff. We were some, some pretty, pretty, very amazing things that were going on. The music, music calms the wild beast. It's amazing what, what music will do and how it activates a person's sensitivity. And also can, you know, um, but business, if business isn't done right, that same person that was smiling at you, you the next thing you know, he's coming at you with a 38. You know what I mean? So it was a, yeah, it yeah. Was a, a very... I was in a very real reality. It wasn't. I wasn't in a kissing and cuddling kind of environment. It was a. It was you know, man. We hustled, man. Excuse my French, but it was a. Uh, it was a, a deep thing. So anyway, shook at all platinum. Joe and Sylvia, the label that they owned was called All Platinum Records, yeah. and we put a record out um, with Brass and Steel. And at that time, I, uh, you know, Sylvia really took a shining to me again, and she. She asked me to play on one of her albums. So I, next thing you know, I'm playing on the Sylvia. Wow. Rock, you know, I'm, here I am now. I'm like, well, it looks like I'm going to start my, you know, being a studio bass player. Yeah. So, so there were three different house, di different, you know, bands that were at the label there. I was in the third tier. You know, the first tier was Yogi Horton and Frankie Prescott. And then the second tier was the Moments Rhythm Section from North Carolina. Then the third tier was myself. Skip and our and wood brass and steel, yeah. and then we slowly worked our way up the ranks, and um, so next thing you know, I do a session for Sylvia, and then since Sylvia is the president of the company, you know, yeah, yeah, and you know, and she, you know, and she rec, you know, she was like, hey, I got you know, some other artists that were working there came came by, like I, uh, you know, like uh, at that time, all platinum records had acquired the chess catalog. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, so they had um, so with the chess catalog came the artists, Solomon Burke, Etta James, um, Jack McDuff, um, uh, Candy Staten, uh, Wilson Pickett. There were certain artists that started to come through there because, you know, they were uh, all platinum was known as a, a kind of like an 
R&B label. They had this artist called The Moments that were their flagship art, uh, you know, most successful artists at All Platinum. So Sylvia opened the opened the door for me. And next thing you know, I'm in the studio with Solomon Burke playing bass or Etta James yeah, and, you know, yeah, yeah. Jack McDuff. I'm doing a session with Jack McDuff. George Benson is just becoming very successful at that time. So I'm in the session doing a session with George Benson on a Jack McDuff record. So Things like that yeah. would take place. Wow. So it was kind of, you know, next thing you know, here I am, you know, as you know, next thing I'm like, poof, I'm a studio musician. But it just happened real quick. So I'm in the studio and, and these were back in the days where like, you know, you would, you know, you would cut, you know, um, as much as you could. It was almost like caddy. Like, you know, it's like yeah, you, it cut, you cut as much as you could. Yeah, it? so we, we weren't getting paid much money, not like what you, not what you should really got paid. I remember getting paid like $50 a track and maybe $25 an overdub and stuff like that. Yeah. So, but you know, you have to cut a lot of tracks to get a, to get a good meal out of that. But I, next thing you know, I'm, I'm in the studio. I get there and, and we had in the studio would be like, you know, we'd have an arranger, Sammy Lowe. He played with the Coleman Hawkins orchestra. He's a trumpet player, really wicked, yeah. really wicked um, trumpet player. He was the arranger. Sammy would get there and he'd have his little cigarette holder and a cigarette and all right, boy, we're <laughs> gonna start from letter A. All right, here, all right, you know. So I learned by you know how to read more by just being on the spot. So I would get to I would you know I'd be scared as I'd be so nervous because I, I, you never know what you know. Every day you get there and it's like okay, is today gonna be the day that I'm really gonna get my ass served to me by not being able to you know yeah. understand what's going on. So I would, they would give me a chart and I'd be like. I, could, I, I couldn't read that well just a little bit. I'd be like, um, I'll be right back. <laughs> so I'd take the chart, go in the bathroom and put notes underneath it so I can yeah, yeah, yeah. make my little, you know, you figure out a way how to, you know, while people are chatting, I'm up there, you know, figuring out how to get through this and so I wouldn't stumble around. So eventually that was all going on. And then, you know, um, so I started, you know, recording and, and that was a lot of fun, man, because, you know, it's just, you know, you're in the studio and. You make, you know, it's, it's so much fun, you know, at, you know, when you're young and you're working with elders and the next, next thing you know, I'm like, man, I'm actually a studio musician. You're in now. there just, doing it. It yeah. just happened. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that was going to happen. I was hoping, but poof, it happened. So now I'm like, okay. So that, so that was from like 1974 to 78, you know, was, it was a good period. And then the label kind of like hit some hard times because, you know, Joe and them were tied in with with Morris Levy, the Gambino crime family. I remember one time being there and, man, you don't even want to know. Uh, we, we, we do a session. I have my friend of jazz bass in there. We go down to the shop, get some get some lunch, come back. Freaking FBI had had, 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 had shut the whole studio down. Yeah. Tape everything, locked it up. I'm like, my fucking bass is in there. <laughs> Excuse my French. So, but Joe had enough influence next by Monday, he had, had it all sorted out. So I've seen some, man, it's, there were times when somebody was so pissed off at them, they had, at the label, they had threw a, gr a grenade into the parking lot. Holy I can't God. make this stuff up. You know what I mean? So uh, anyway, I was, it, at that time, we were like, maybe this isn't a good time to be around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys are having some technical difficulties. We're going to, so we ended up, at that point, we started to, you know, uh, we, we did one record, one album. Then we did the second Wood, Brass & Steel album. They were going through um, technical difficulties. And that second record just bombed. You know, they never, it was a great record, but they never they never um, could support it because the label was, was on its knees. 
So we left. We kind of not really left. We just never kind of like we just left everything in suspended animation and moved moved over. Yeah. So we started working over in New York City, meeting some folks. Now disco's in full form at this time. So then I got a, then um, the singer Craig Derry um, met a, met met some folks, and there was this one record that was that it came out from a band called Musique. And there was this massive disco hit called Push Push in the Bush. Yeah. yeah. Big disco hit. So we're next thing you know, we get an audition to to uh back this these three girls up. They were hot, they were everywhere. Uh disco was in full form. So next thing you know, with it's just things would happen in like 48 hours, it would go from here to there. Next thing you know, next weekend I'm on stage watching three beautiful asses dance in disco. You know what I mean? It's like you know, we're like somebody would be like, "Yo, okay, what's the tempo of this of this song? Just follow that ass right there. See that ass wiggling? <laughs> Just follow that. That's the tempo right there." Yeah. So next thing you know, we're doing disco and stuff, and I'm next. Poof! I'm at Studio 54 in New York City playing, you know, with with uh, push uh, music. That went on for about a year, year and a half, and then I never forget. I was at you know, um, 1979, right around this time of year, actually. Right, almost damn near to the day, and um, we had met. You know, the band had fizzled out, and there's only you know, like all bands. Usually, what happens is when a band breaks up, you know, some guys never return to playing music. They go and get a day job or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it kind of filtered down to myself, Skip, and then the horn players had went off to go play with another artist. The keyboard player, Jesus, called him back in. We did this one gig. Uh, we push with music on New Year's Eve, and it's just we're playing in Florida, and it's just transvestites and friggin'. We're playing this real <laughs> freaky club called the Limelight. Keyboard player couldn't take it anymore because he's very religious. He's out. So he goes back to the church. So me, me, and so, and then the drummer, you know, the, uh, that was in the band was the keyboard player's drummer. He's a little shaky, so we wanted to kind of replace him. Um, and Harold Sargent, the original drummer that got me, you know, started with Skip. Yeah said, you know, hey, man, you know, um, we were auditioning drummers. So he, he introduced us to Keith LeBlanc. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So Keith, we met Keith, like I said, right around this time of year, August of 1979. Keith had never been in a recording studio before. And he was playing with an, he had been playing with an Elvis Presley impersonation band out of Kansas City. <laughs> never been in the band, right? You can't make this shit up. So, um. So we get so Keith comes and he auditions at my house and it was he comes in with just a snare drum, hi hat, and bass drum. Start, start going through some stuff. I'm like, okay, he can play. Um, so about so Sylvia Robinson had been calling my mom's house at the time, and because the, I was with my elders and we had had a, we had did a record, you know, and they didn't do anything with us. My friends were like the other guys and man were like, don't call her back, don't you know, <laughs> screw her. She. She didn't, she screwed up us from the last record and now us money and we never got paid royalty, blah, 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 all this other stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'm following my elders' orders. So then I, so we're playing in, in New Haven. We're playing, like I said, you can't make this stuff up. We're playing at a place, we met another, another street hustling kind of dude, and he and, and he had an after-hours club, and it was called Leo's Welfare Disco. And what it was. <laughs> It was he was set up. I was like Leo's welfare disco. Yeah, he was right next to the welfare office. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like if yeah. you, like when you're on the dole and stuff like that, wherever the office in England yeah, is the yeah, equivalent yeah, yeah, yeah. of 
It's the same. It's the welfare. So his his after hours club was right next to the freaking welfare, you know, state welfare office, Leo's Welfare Disco. So I go up and um, we're playing there. And all of a sudden I hear this record come on. And, you know, because my ears were trained to different studios, and you knew the sound of a studio. You knew if a Motown record came on, you knew. You didn't know the artist, but you could hear it. That's a Motown record. Oh, yeah, yeah, Stax yeah. record came on. That's a Stax record. You didn't know who it was, but you could tell by the sound of the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rudy Van Gelder, you know, recording of a Miles Davis. Well, that's a Rudy Van Gelder, you know, uh, recording. And all these other things like that. I heard four bars of this one record, and I was like, that? is an all platinum record yeah. because no studio could sound that bloody cheesy because all <laughs> platinum studio had a real cheesy sound. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? The drums were so tight. They had a Kotex on the snare drum to mute the snare drum from keep the snare drum from ringing, you know, women's pads and stuff all over, you know, for, for their periods were all on the drums and shit. So I knew, I knew the sound knew of this the sound, yeah. studio because I had been recording. I'm like, that is an all platinum record. Lo and behold, was Rapper's Delight. Wow. I heard Rapper's Delight come out, and I was like, oh, because I had been hearing about, oh, this is rap stuff. Sylvia had been calling my house because Rapper's Delight it came out, because oh, yeah. she wanted us to actually cut it yeah. originally. Yeah. But because of my alliance and everything, you know, so I was, so then Keith is there, and I, and, and I was like, skip. You know, you, know what the, you know what studio that is? He was like, of course I know what studio that is. <laughs> And, Skip, and, and Keith is like, what, what, what are you talking I said, that's, that's all platinum. What all platinum? What's, Keith had never been in the studio. So then Sylvia called my house the next day. My mom, she liked my mom. So I said, you know what? So Keith was like, man, I never recorded before, man. And he had heard all the stories, real, you know, in the short time we knew him. He was, Doug, call her back, man. You know, let's go in the studio. Keith's real itchy. And Skip is like, no, leave him alone. I don't want to do it, man, because he's the elder. He's like, I'm not a good feeling about this. You know, he's more like keeping to his elder roots. Yeah. And, I, and I'm like, Skip, it's on you. What do you want? What do you think? All right, give him a call. It ain't going to hurt. So I called Sylvia back. I called Sylvia. She's, hi, Doug. How you doing? I miss you. I got something really hot going on here. So I knew what was happening, but I let her tell the story. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, things are changing and, you know, we got this, we're, we're doing, you know, this, this hip hop stuff is hot. And um, I really need you to come down here to help me out with that. I said, well, when can you come? When can you come? Well, no time like now, is it? So I said, well, I said, okay, well, I can't come right now. We'll get the, I'll come down with a skip. And, and, and we'll come down tomorrow. So yeah. we drove down to New, New Jersey. All right? We drove down. And, um, you know, I bring it's Keith and Skip and myself. There's the three of us. Skip, Keith had the car. Yeah. So um, so we go there, and it was like instantly we meet the Sugar Hill Gang. Wow. And I meet um, and and then Sylvia is so happy to see, oh, God, you know, she always took a shining to me because I was a young kid around gangsters and she knew it. She was always like, y'all look after this look, this little boy. Don't corrupt him. So I'm like 22. And um, she, oh, I'm so glad you're here. You know, she loved me. And I love and I loved Sylvia. She was, you know, like, my, you know, she was really, uh, uh, you know, as much as she was a serious woman, I learned a lot from her, but she really put me on. 
But she really loved me. Oh, I'm so happy you're here, Doug. Now I can do all the things. And Skip, oh, thank God you're here. Now we got some stuff going on. Things are going to change. So we instantly went. We met her. We went back there and had a meeting. And then she, you know, met Joe. You know, saw Joe again. And they're really, really happy to see us because at that time everybody had left the company. There's just just a shadow of yeah, what yeah, was yeah. left there because they had went through tax evasion and all their main artists now had left and gone off and you know they're rebuilding. And there's you know and there's nothing left there really. It's just they they were really on their knees. But now they got this massive hit that's that's happening. You know, Rapper's Light was one of the largest selling 12 inches of all time. Yeah. And mind you, they're an independent record label, so it's not like Warner Brothers. So when you're independent, you can you can doctor the books up all you want. You yeah, can yeah, yeah. do what you want to do. Um, so we do. So the same day, she was like, you know what? Let's just we let's cut a track for the Sugar Hill Gang right now. First day we're going to Keith's, Keith's eyeballs are popping out of his head. He's he's going bananas, you know. So we go in there and cut the track. Oh, this is great. Cool. So now she pulls me and Skip aside and she goes, Oh, this is great. Now, how much do you guys want for that? I want to pay you right now in cash. I said, Okay, well, we want to get this. Okay, um, what are we going to pay the white boy? <laughs> What's we going to pay the drummer? I said, well, we'd like to pay him the same as what we got. She's like, no, I don't know him. I don't know him like you. No. Sylvia, we want to, you know, and that was that moment where we had a chance to sell our boys out. She was like, well, you know, he's, we're all, you know, you're a band, you know, you want to try to do everything. Right? She's like, no. I know you and Skip. I don't know him. You know, he, you know, you have been here and playing before. I don't want to pay him what I pay you. Yeah. And she didn't. So, but what we did was we were honest. Me and Skip were like, you know, here's the deal. We got this much, you know what I mean? But she wants to pay you that, you know, and, but here's a few dollars from what we got. We're a band. You, know? yeah, you don't yeah, want to yeah. you don't want to start to divide and conquer. That was the moment where we had a choice we could have made. And if we want, if we sold Keith out, we would have, you know, she would have been happy about that because she really would have tried to set us up for some other stuff. But, you know, you know, when you when you work with a person, you already know how they are. It's not like I just met Sylvia. I already knew where this story would go. Yeah. So yeah, we yeah. were we didn't take that. We didn't go that route because, you know, at the, you, you'll pay for that with extreme interest later on down the line. So we were like, no, we want to make sure Keith, the white boy, we want to see he's going to. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's the only white dude in the all black set. But Keith could play. <laughs> She kind of liked him, but she liked his playing, but she didn't like his attitude. She could instantly see I'm something about this guy I don't like. But I'm like, well, we like him. So, okay, you 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 guys deal with that. I'm going to sort you two guys out. That's what happened. So next thing you know, she was like, oh, there's a whole lot more work to come. You Can you guys come back next week? We're going to start recording the Sugar Hill record. The record was blowing up. I mean, it yeah. was just freaking Rapper's Delight was phenomenal. So it's like next week, you know what? What I want to do is they got a gig in New York uh, at Harlem World, and I want you guys to come and play with them. So okay, there's only one issue. There's only one. There's only one thing. Sylvia said, "What? I already got a band, <laughs> but I want to put you guys <laughs> with that band. other band." Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? So she was like, because she wanted to, basically she wanted to replace them with us. She always wanted us to be there anyway, at least me and Skip. So next thing you know, we're playing a gig, and it's like you know. She kind of has Keith play drums on the track, and then me and Skipper playing with the other guys. And of course, the other band gets pissed off. That band was Positive Force. They had that record, We Want the Funk. We Got the Funk. Yeah. We got the funk. funk. You got it. 
we got there from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And and um, so they get kind of pissed off because they see the power move that's going on. They remove themselves. So then next, so so Sylvia was smart. She knew what to do. If I did this, she already knew the moves that people would do. She's very, she's from, she's from Harlem. So um, she's from Sugar Hill, um, the part of Harlem. So the band leaves. Next thing you know, here we are now. Myself, Keith, and Skip are the are, are recording the Sugar Hill Gang record. Like it all happened like in a weekend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's like from from the time I heard that Leo's Welfare Disco to the next week. I went to the studio, cut a track, and next weekend I'm in Harlem playing with the Sugar Hill Gang. Happened like that. There's and nothing I feel like no, white no, lines was all born out of that. and No blurred lines. It was just boom, boom, boom. One weekend I'm in Leo's Welfare Disco in New Haven. The next weekend I'm in Harlem World in Harlem, USA, playing with the Sugar Hill Gang. And I thought I was playing with the Beatles at that time. They were so popular. The whole block was rammed with people. You couldn't get into the venue. And then we, we could only play, we play one song. People are going absolutely ape shit. Then everybody started to bum rush to get in the club. Then we had to, then we had to sneak out the back door, get in a little, and then people are chasing them down the street. I thought I was playing with the Beatles at the yeah, time. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. this is way more than I mind ever expected. Blown. It was mind boggling. So then we did, so we so we cut the we started cutting the album, and then uh, this is in September, August, late August, September. We started cutting the record. We were like, you know, we need to cut this record and get this get this out here right now, because right now we're selling records like hotcakes. That's what I remember Sylvia would say. <laughs> These hotcakes are hot. We while it's on the grill, you got to sell them. So here we are now. So we go in and we start recording the first Sugar Hill Gang record. And I had a couple of songs, you know, one, one song, Funk Box, that we that we kind of like were already doing before we met the Sugar Hill Gang. I played that groove. They liked it. That became one of the songs. Some other things. But, you know, back then, you know, you, an album would only be 20, you know, maybe 18 to 20, 20 minutes per side. Yeah. So you maybe maybe the record would have maybe eight songs on it or something like that. You know, Rapper's Delight was 15 minutes all by itself. Yeah. So, so we cut the record, did that. And then, then she gets a call from... George Clinton's, um, you know, Sugar Hill Gang is, is playing by them, you know, doing these discos or whatever. But now it became so massive that they, these calls started to come in to, to tour. And they get a call from George Clinton, Parliament yeah, Funkadelic. Parliament, yeah. So at that time, Knee Deep is out. Uh, not just knee deep, she was only knee deep when you did the freak with me. One of my favorite, and I'm a, I'm a massive George Clinton fan, yeah. so I'm like, God exists. You know, <laughs> here we are. I'll, I'm, 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 I'm a Funkadelic baby, you know. After Jimmy passed, Funkadelic was the one that kind of kept yeah, yeah. the stuff going. So, next thing you know, poof. We're out on the road. With Parliament. First gig, Nashville, October 31st, 1979. We started a tour with Parliament Funkadelic. I'll never forget this. So we roll up, and this is great. So we roll up to the gig, <laughs> and, you know, we had, we had, we had, had a, a guy over here that knew uh, uh, um, one of the guys that, that had a bus company, and he used to drive, he used to have a, the Rolling Stones used to use this bus. Yeah. It's an old uh it was an old uh, Golden Eagle uh, uh, bus, quite old. So we were like, we're going to go on the road. So we got this bus. It was pretty beat up, but it was it was kind of it was it was an old pimped out bus, like from the, from the late '60s and stuff. 
And uh, so we got that bus and we drive to um, Nashville. We get to the gig and George Clinton is in, I mean, Parliament Funkadelic is, in, is at their height. So they got all the props and friggin' midgets and, you know, trapeze artists and there's 19 microphones straight across the stage. It was phenomenal. We walk into the gig. Who's the first person I meet? Dennis Chambers. <laughs> sitting on sitting on a drum case playing bass. I don't know who was who. I thought he was a bass player. So we hit it off instantly. Yeah. And then I, you know, I'm a I'm I'm a huge George Clinton fan, so I knew all the songs and everything. So next thing you know, it's funny because we get off the bus, <laughs> we had no trailer, then we open up one of the bays, pull out our little amplifier and shit. And these guys from Funkadelic look at us coming in there because they're laughing at us. They're like, who the hell is this this Johnny One Song band coming yeah, out yeah, here? Yeah. And they're, they're full production. So they're up there laughing at us. They're up there loud. Look at these country boys up here like that. Until we got on stage and started playing. And we would do one intro song, going to rappers to like complete pandemonium in the stadium. Really? Com- people are singing every note, every song. And, and all the guys from Parliament Funkadelic, they had been on the road so much, they weren't even hip to hip-hop. Yeah, 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 so the first yeah, time yeah. they saw it was through us. Yeah. So within 24 hours, they went from laughing at us to by the end of the gig, they were like, yo, these boys can play. So next thing you know, <laughs> boom, we became we became, we became tight. Bernie Worrell and Dennis and Skeet and George. George was in semi-retirement because he was doing so good. He was producing everybody. He would just do like the Capitals and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. But we ended up doing... Uh, October 30 for Halloween started in Nashville and we ended up around the 15th of December uh, in Chicago. But it was it was my first like real tour. You know what I mean? Well, no, I've been out on the road before a little bit, but not like that. Yeah, but big. Yeah, um, yeah not yeah. like that. So you know now the Sugar Hill air is here and here we are nicely seated in with um, Sylvia Robinson. Then here comes Grandmaster Flash across from the South Bronx and. Yeah, I remember the day they showed up at the studio. They took the bus over from 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 uh, Fort Apache in in uh, in the Bronx, and I never forget. I can I can see him walking down the street right now. So we met we met Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five, and then basically Joe Joe Robinson had a, had once once hip hop got once the rappers delight got big, Joe wanted to go find more hip hop artists, yeah, yeah, more yeah. rap artists. So there was a record store in Harlem called. Uh, uh, that was owned by another uh, by a person named Bobby Robinson. No relationship to Joe Robinson, but they all knew each other. Yeah, right? yeah. So Bobby Robinson had the Crash Crew, uh, uh, Funky uh, Funky Four Plus One, uh, Spoonie G, the Treacherous Three, and Grandmaster Flash. Grandmaster Flash came over first, and then we we cut Freedom with them, and um, and then Freedom became a, a, a big hit. And even prior to that, we while we were out on the road on the Parliament Funkadelic tour with with P Funk, um, uh, we played in Columbia, South Carolina. Sylvia came out on the road with me. She's like, "Doug, I need you to come here real quick. Bring your bass. I got these three girls outside. I want you to hear them." So I go out there, bring my bass. Um, girls, sing the song for this. Is the bass player, sing that song you just sang for me for Doug. And they're singing, "I want to funk you." Right on up, we're going to funk you. Right on up, so I put my bass out and I write the bass line right there with that. While so we wrote the song instantly while I'm meeting, while they're singing it to me, and Sylvia 
I come up with the bass line. So the song was written at the audition right on that spot. Amazing. So you remember that bass line, Doug? Yeah. Okay. So she goes, Doug, I like these girls. What 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 should I what should I do? You think we should record them? Sylvie, them girls are kind of hot. I said, yeah, okay. That's what I thought. I just needed you to, I needed you to let me know that as well, because you really trusted my opinion. So I want to bring them up to, I want to bring them up to New York, but I need you to do me a favor. I said, what, Sylvia? I need you to look after them if you can, because they're country bumpkins. Yeah. They were from Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're young and everything, and she knew they were going to be bringing up to the, to the city. So she brings them up, and we record, funk you up. And, um, and, and, uh, and that's funky up is just straight me skipping Keith and that's it. Maybe yeah. Craig Derry on percussion and, and, um, that record blew up. So then Sylvia was like, you know what, uh, I want to move them up here. So she got an apartment for them in Fort Lee in, uh, in, in, um, Hackensack, New Jersey. And we kind of, myself and Skip were kind of like in Craig Derry, who was my, another, another, uh, mentor. And also had been and known uh, Sylvia and them for years. Um, we were kind of like their chaperone, older brothers and mentors. Because yeah, we yeah. got these three girls from Columbia, South Carolina. It's almost like the Stevie Wonder song. Ah, living in the city, you know, stop. You know, like these folks coming from the country. And we didn't want to, we didn't want, we had to look after them. They're really nice girls. So we took them under our wings. Yeah. And, and that was... And and one of the artists from who came from Sequence is Angie Stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Angie, yeah, yeah. that's from Sequence. So wow. anyway, we did that, and then Joe had ended up buying out uh, Bobby Robinson back to Bobby Robinson and his and his record company, and had all those artists. So then you know Flash became had a hit. Sequence everything we cut just went to gold. Is everything? I was, was going to say it was, instantly. It was kind of like. It was just a huge, it was that, that, that change, wasn't it, in the industry? You know, there was a huge, when hip-hop exploded, it was just like, well, it completely changed history, didn't it? In the music scene. Well, it, was it, just a, it really did. But nobody, everybody thought it was a fad at first. Yeah, they thought yeah. it was just going to go away, right? It's like, um, you know, American radio is a lot different than English radio. English radio, you can have the friggin' Cop Liverpool Choir doing, having a number one song or something like that, or some, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. athlete, you know, you know it's, you know, it's kind of like, it's there's a sentimental thing that goes and there's a, and there's a there's a there's a place in top of the pops for you. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly, America's exactly. a little bit different. You know what I mean? You got like your you know this is black radio and well you know the same all over. But you know you have your you have your different categories and you know and blah 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 blah. So everybody thought that you know they didn't play the only the only a few stations played hip hop at that time. It's amazing. And, um, it was yeah. You know, but it didn't matter because it was so, it was so street based. That it would, uh, you know, it was, it was sell. Listen, when Rapper's Light was done, Joe and them were on their knees. They couldn't, they owed the government money. They gave, they played that record. Frankie Prescott broke that out. And missed, And it was a DJ named Mr. Magic. And he would play, like, some, some early hip-hop stuff. And then they played, he played Rapper's Light on WBLS. The phone lines went crazy. And it was Frankie Prescott, WBLS radio station, that... Broke rappers delight, and and what happened was Joe and them were on their knees. They had because all these old record companies, they had their own. They, they could they had their own 
a cutter at the studios. They could they could do their own test plate and and, and make a, a a dub plate. You can only play it about four or five times yeah, or yeah, something yeah. like that. For, but they would do that, send it over to Frankie and stuff like that. Probably have a little money in there as well for him. And um, with the influence of a Morris Levy or something like that, they could push some stuff through. So they so Rappers Light became you know there were orders stacking up their orders and orders and orders. People wanted to buy the record, but they couldn't buy the record because Joe and Sylvia Robinson had a tax lien on them, <laughs> yeah. and they owed the pressing plant, this maker. So yeah. they couldn't, they couldn't, so Joe had to reach out to Morris Levy, to, you know, because Morris Levy had that influence. Morris realized there was a hit, hit Joe off, set up, and kind of set Sugar Hill up for Joe Robinson. Oh, yeah. He pretty much set him up. And, you know, and, and with Joe's, with Joe's, influence and Morris Levy's influence Morris was kind of like in the shadows Joe was still in the forefront Joe and Sylvia but he kind of set the, he kind of he took the lean off and paid some debts to get you know from the from the pressing plant so that he could press up rappers to, to get like, them getting rolling and stuff like that well yeah. the if you look at the first if you look at rappers delight if you go online later on and you look at you, you the first pressing of rappers delight wasn't on Sugar Hill Records Right. It didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was on Roulette Records. Roulette Records is owned by Morris Levy. And so then it was almost like, over, yeah. yeah. So once that was just for one quick to get it out the door. Once Morris and them knew it was a massive hit, they were like, "Oh no, we're gonna we're gonna set. We're gonna, we, I know exactly what to do." So they set Joe and Sylvia up with Sugar Hill. And Sylvia named it after after where she grew up at. There's and that was that. Records going on. Listen, Doug, what we try and do is we try and sort of like keep these interviews to an hour and we're sort of like, I think we're like... I'm, I'm moving on, man. No, no, check this out. Two. Check this out, man, because I want to hear about Tackhead. I want to hear about Living Colour, the full thing. So what I You're going to get that in an hour. Well, I'm yeah, no. So what I think we can. should do is I think we should cut the interview here. And if you're cool with it, I know everybody else will be sort of like wanting to hear the rest as well. We should do like another interview, like a part two... Yeah, let's do it. Let's do that. Is that cool? I, I, yeah. There's so much. There's so much stuff. I don't want to that's rush going it. on, and it, and I and I'm I like to. I mean, now I'm at that age where I want to I want to be able to at least let people know the truth of what happened, or else it gets interpreted by somebody else. Exactly, man. I don't want you to like rush. I don't want to basically like, rush the good. Like, no, more that's good stuff. that's a great idea. Let's just let's let's cap it on our on our Sugar Hill era right there, kind of like because you the rest of the stuff you can kind of fill in. But that Sugar Hill era was a was a pretty deep era. And are you, are you cool to come back on? So with good. Are you cool to come back in like a couple of months' time and do a do a part two? You let me know when. Contact me. I'm around. Matter of fact, just any time, man. Let's make it happen. Man, you're an absolute star. Okay, guys, thanks for checking out that interview. And as I said right at the beginning of this interview, this is just part one of the Doug Wimbish interview. We're going to hook up with Doug uh, in a few, well, hopefully a month or so time for round two. Uh, I'm sure you could tell by that interview, he, he, he really wanted to get the story out about, you know, about his early career and, you know, all about the Sugar Hill records and that stuff. I couldn't even stop him talking. <laughs> I even checked the mute button. I thought he couldn't hear me at some points. <laughs> but yeah, massive shout out for Doug as well for being just such a cool dude and uh, hopping on hopping on Skype with me to do that interview. Now, again, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, just shoot over to the site and you can check it out there. 
Um, I've put some cool videos of Doug that will uh, show you all about his rig and his, you know, the effects he uses and cool performances as well. So you can check that out. And remember as well, if you're an Academy member, you can also watch the entire video version of that interview as well. If you're not already an Academy member, just go check it out at scottsbassessons.com. In a nutshell, it's the best online learning platform for bass players in the world. It's the best online bass school in the world. Um, there's step-by-step courses, live seminars every week, the largest online bass educational community in the world, and heaps more, the whole nine yards. And we have a completely free 14-day trial as well, so you can take it for a test drive just to see if it's for you. Now, thanks again, guys, for listening today. Huge shout-out to you guys as well for tuning in every week. I hugely 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 appreciate it and next week hopefully you'll be tuning again because we've got colin edwin on with us colin is the bass player from the epically cool epically cool porcupine tree i don't know if you've heard porcupine tree you should check him out they're just such a killer band and uh, and he's got a really individual style and approach as well so yeah so colin will be with us next week and hopefully you'll be with us too now take it easy and i'll see you in the shed